1: Good afternoon, everybody, and a big, warm welcome to Jim Power. My co-host returns from his post-budget holiday. Jim has to have a lie down every year after the budget. gets longer each year as Jim gets older. This one took two weeks. Have you recovered from your budgetary exertions, Jim?
2: Chris, I should point out that this was a holiday that I booked and paid for in November 2019, and I had postponed it on two occasions. And uh, l- looking up my diary for 2021, I reckoned a couple of days after the budget was a good time to get away. Uh, but, but budget week becomes more and more crazy from my perspective, uh, despite the fact that it really is a non-event, but uh, it does absorb a lot of my time. And uh, yeah, it was it was great to get two weeks off. And uh, actually one of the most... Rewarding things about it was the fact that I brought no technology with me, so I missed Twitter for two weeks. Well, sorry, I should rephrase that. I actually didn't miss Twitter for two weeks. It was so fantastic to get away from that cesspit. And uh, but of course, the reality is that as soon as I get back to work, it becomes part of my work life again. Uh, but it it just does show um, how much of an impact.
1: It is having on our lives, actually. Do, um, do you feel unable to give it up?
2: From a professional point of view, I find it really good uh, because, you know, if you use it as a source of news and as a source of access to research and so on, uh, there's really, really good stuff in there. But for every one piece of good stuff, there's about 100 pieces of absolute rubbish that you tend to scroll through. So I think one has to be very selective. Um, in terms of what one exposes oneself to on that particular social um, medium. But uh, I I certainly didn't miss it. But I do find myself as I come back having to uh, go back looking at it again, to, you know, to find out what's going on in my world.
1: One of the things that did happen to social media while you were away, Jim, is that and maybe this was because Facebook uh, don't they snuck it in while you weren't looking. They changed their name. Facebook are now the Metaverse. I think they're called. I think I think we're probably a wee bit old for all of these things, Jim. I, I don't see any three D reality virtual headsets on that show shelves behind you. The Metaverse is probably going to pass you and I by, I'd guess. More seriously, what yeah. what have you picked up since you've been back? What have you? What do you think has happened? What do you think that's noteworthy? in your mind anyway, that's that's happened over the last few weeks. I think I can probably guess what you're going to say, but I'll let you say it.
2: Yeah, Chris, I should f- first of all say that uh, well done in carrying the can over the past couple of weeks. Uh, you've brought on a couple of interesting guests. I hope our listeners enjoy them. Um, and I hope they're not too disconsolate that I, I'm back at the helm again. Um, I, I, I guess what, what has really built up over the last couple of weeks was something that we have been increasingly discussing in recent podcasts, and that is the whole question of global growth, uh, the impact that supply-side shortages and bottlenecks are having on global growth, um, and then how that's feeding into the inflation debate, and and, and then, of course, how it feeds into how central bankers view the world. So a few things strike me. One is that the supply-side Bottlenecks have actually intensified. And we saw quarter three growth out of the United States last week, um, a slowdown to 2%, which I believe was by far uh, below the market consensus. Um, And the key factor driving that slowdown in growth was not a reduction in demand in the economy. Demand still seems to be pretty strong, uh, but serious supply side constraints. Um, the lack of cars, scarcity of labor, uh, the cost and scarcity of materials, particularly in the construction sector, and, of course, the semiconductor issue. So all of these supply-side bottlenecks having a really significant impact on U.S. economic activity. Uh, The Eurozone, on the other hand, seems to be defined that for the moment. You know, growth in the third quarter was quite strong uh, but within that, it's interesting to see, and no surprises here, I guess, uh, it's interesting to see the differential performance by countries. Uh, France growing very strongly and is now virtually back a couple of percent off its pre-COVID levels of activity, whereas Spain performing quite poorly, not not least because of its very, very high dependence on the sector that has been most adversely affected by covid over the last couple of years which is tourism so but the supply side issues do not appear to be as intense in europe as in the united states at the moment uh, but i guess that's a question of time so that that's the one thing chris that really strikes me that supply side bottleneck issue um, is definitely intensifying and then on the other side of the equation you know we're seeing some pretty dramatic inflation numbers being reported 4.1% in the Eurozone in October. Um, And, uh, you know, that's certainly higher than would have been anticipated. And the central bank mantra that inflation, which is one that the European Central Bank continues to um, repeat, is that this looks like a transitory problem. But of course, the transitory period is becoming longer and longer. So, Serious issues there on the inflation front. And from a central bank's perspective, it just strikes me that they really are in a serious bind at the moment. Um, The Bank of England, uh, at least the speculation, is that this Thursday it may start to tighten monetary policy by increasing interest rates. Um, It strikes me that that would be a mistake. But the Bank of England seems to have backed itself into a bit of a corner if it actually does deliver that interest rate increase. Uh, we have the Federal Reserve meeting this week. Uh, they're likely to be more prescriptive about the tapering of the bond-buying programme. Um, and the European Central Bank, as I say, is still quite relaxed and believes that the inflation thing is transitory. But if you put yourself in the shoes of a central banker at the moment, uh, there appears to be a massive dilemma you know, on the one hand, we see these inflationary pressures building and inflation certainly reaching levels that central bankers traditionally would have been deeply uncomfortable with. Um, and they're trying to justify why they're actually tolerating that. But on the other side of the equation, uh, there is the whole issue about the impact on long term interest rates. Uh, because, you know, obviously, one of the things that happened immediately, COVID hit back in March 2020 was that fiscal policy and monetary policy started to work very much in tandem. So in other words, governments were encouraged to spend money to grow their deficits in order to help their economies. And at the same time, monetary policy, through quantitative easing and bon- or bond buying, um, was used to keep the cost of government borrowing as low as possible. So I guess from a central banker perspective at the moment, if they start to tighten policy if bond yields start to rise as a result of that, but they may rise anyway, regardless of what happens short term interest rates. But if long term interest rates start to rise, suddenly debt servicing starts to become a significant issue for a lot of heavily indebted countries. So, really, I, I think it's a long, long time since I've seen central bankers in this sort of a dilemma. Um, Mm. Very, very difficult balancing act. What do you think?
1: The first thing is that I go back to my sort of, I don't know whether it's ancient economic theory or dinosaur economic theory about what central bankers are supposed to do in the face of different types of shocks that they face because in in the old days and I'm going to use a bit of jargon here which I hope our non-economist listeners will bear with me for a second Um, and I know these sorts of things don't figure in the textbooks anymore because we've moved on from simple models of the economy do you remember the old ISLM models it used to be the case that if what central banks what policymakers should do it depended on where the shocks came from whether it came from the IS bit of the economy or the LM bit of the economy the real bit of the economy or the monetary bit of the economy it strikes me that the right thing To do on the basis of the old fashioned theory is that in the face of a a supply shock of this nature, it's, it's it's fiscal policy that should react, not monetary policy. But that's almost an aside. The reason why I raise it is because I do think that we do need to see fiscal and monetary policy working in tandem with each other in the months and years ahead. Now, the simple fact is, which nobody apart from one or two economics commentators are pointing out is that over the next year or two, in all economies, there's going to be a massive fiscal contraction, because we've had all these temporary economic supports that are going to disappear. The, the relevant word are, are economic support, and they're not. the economy just not going to have it anymore. So there's a fiscal contraction coming at a time when central banks are now thought to be likely to be tightening in some shape or form. Your hint there that you thought the banking would be making a mistake is absolutely right they shouldn't raise rates. I noticed that all sorts of different people, the, the board of the Financial Times are calling on them not to raise rates this week, because they think it would be a mistake. One of the things that is different to the past in the UK, at least, I maybe you will know more about this in Ireland than I do, Jim, but certainly in the UK, the channel of monetary policy is going to be different, because many, many more mortgages now are held on a fixed rate basis than variable rates. There's been a big change in the UK. Duncan Weldon, my co-host, your stand-in, your doppelganger over the last couple of weeks has a piece out uh, today, I think, pointing out that 20 years ago, any change in UK interest rates would have an immediate impact on the monthly housing costs of a quarter of all households. If it does it this week, it'll only be 5% because of the extent of fixed mortgages. That's quite a change. And so I I, I don't know whether it whether they put interest rates up this week or not. Will amount to very much um in terms of in terms of impact whether whether it, if it's if it is a mistake i don't think it'll be a huge one it's it's whether or not it's, of course it's followed by more and more. What's the more? What's the state of mortgages in the UK in the in Ireland now relative to the UK? Are they still very much variable rates, or you you got more fixed rates?
2: Uh, there's more fixed rates than we would have had in 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 the past, but still uh, variable rates. there's a proponent out there, and of course we have that lump of tracker mortgages, which is tied to the ECB's variable rate. Um, so yeah, I mean, are the Irish housing market and housing costs are still pretty vulnerable to? Any upward move in short term interest rates. But um, I think Irish borrowers needn't worry at the moment because the European Central Bank, of all the central banks out there at this juncture, would appear to be mo- most relaxed about what's happening. Last week, we had the Bank of Canada um, starting the tapering process. We had the Reserve Bank of Australia allowing bond yields rise above its target level and they've increased significantly. Uh, but the European Central Bank still stands out. And and, and that, I, I guess for those of us who would have studied the European Central Bank over the years, and particularly, you know, we worked together in the run-up to the creation of the European Central Bank and the, the Bundesbank influence on the ECB. Um, when I was away, uh, Weidmann, the president of the Bundesbank, um, announced his resignation. Um, I didn't see any background to that, uh, was it a normal resignation or is he uh, pissed off basically with what policy is doing? In well, Frankfurt? it's a bit like
1: it's a bit like the last time the last one went, which was about 10 years ago. I can't remember his name now. Um, the last head of the Bundesbank resigned in what we thought was high-dudgeon protest against then Mario Draghi's policies. Um, but he didn't make too much of a fuss. And... Um, I think he, I think he went on for a lucrative career in the private sector, if mem- memory serves. So, Weidman Ve- has not made any public statement, as far as I know, about him being cheesed off with um, the, the the current policies of the ECB. But the assumption everybody has is that he's had enough of complaining about, uh, you know, the money printing that's going on and the inflation that is a present in the eurozone economy and b coming down. The pipeline so yeah the, the, there's no there's no sense that there's an imminent hike coming from the from the ecb and it it, it didn't really cause much uh, as much of an explosion that perhaps uh, a bundesbank resignation would have caused in the past things have changed things have moved on these you know weidman was important but i think the world is saying he wasn't that important actually which is interesting but going back to the uk i think that there's there's some there'll be there's an interesting thing going on with respect to how the Bank of England has actually make, made a bit of a mess of it, again, going back to Duncan's comments that I was mentioning earlier on, he thinks that it's not just the fact that they may or may not raise rates this week or next month. Uh, it's neither here nor there, really, as I suggest, as I said earlier on, I don't think it, it's, it's, it's even if it leads to immediate mortgage rate hikes. Because so many mortgages are fixed these days, the channels of monetary policy are much weaker than they were, or at least they're very different to the way in which they were. The issue for the for the British central bank is that they've allowed expectations over the next eighteen months to really race on there's quite a lot of tightening in the curve as as monetary economists would say so what they what they do if they do raise rates soonish because a lot of people are saying if they don't, they will lose credibility they've really allowed themselves to be boxed into a a weird corner that if they don't raise rates, they're going to look foolish. So the best way to do it now, the argument goes, is, okay, stick 25 basis points, a quarter of a percentage points on interest rates, but at the same time, change the narrative or seize control back of the narrative, which means, say, we're raising rates now, but tell the market that the rate rises that it's got built into market expectations for the next couple of years are nuts. So pull that down. And I think that's what they're likely to do in some shape or form. Um, They'll raise rates and lower expectations or just not raise rates at all. Either way, I think that it's going to be negative for the currency. Now, I'm not going to be a currency forecaster because, as you know, I hate forecasting anything. But if there's one thing I really, really hate forecasting and that's exchange rates. But um, if I was a foreign exchange trader and I'm not, I'd be a seller of sterling against the euro in particular right now.
2: That's interesting. Um, uh, One of the things that has certainly been a feature of foreign exchange markets over the last few years has been uh, the lack of volatility. I mean, they've been incredibly stable. We've seen, okay, we've had the odd shock, for example, the Brexit vote caused sterling to weaken significantly. But generally, there hasn't been a lot of volatility in currency markets. It appears to be rising at the moment um, and presumably that reflects the uncertainty about what central bankers are going to do, the impact that will have on bond markets and equity markets, and so on. So, are we? Do you think we're in for a period of um, greater exchange rate volatility?
1: Well, I don't know is the honest answer. But I just thought my 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 feeling about the way in which the UK interest rate debate, the Bank of England has lost control of it. Uh, the expectations of higher interest rates in the immediate and medium term has led to a little bit of sterling strength against the euro in recent months not a lot but a bit and i think that if the bank of england succeeds in taking out those higher interest rate expectations as i think that is the right thing to do i don't think the british economy needs significantly higher interest rates um then uh, that bit of sterling strength will subside so um That's just a a feeling. It's not even, I I wouldn't dignify it by saying it's analysis. Whether that's volatility returning, I don't know. But you're right, it's really interesting that that the currency volatility that you and I grew up with just just isn't present anymore. Jim, one of the things that did happen while you were away is that um, we had a new number one podcast from a good few weeks ago now, which was our speculation, which is related to everything that we've said today about the global economy screeching to a halt. That was the, the label I put on the podcast. And that has now proved to be our most popular podcast to date, by a mile, actually. And um, I find that quite interesting because since we discussed it, it's certainly become a popular theme amongst a lot of commentators, I have noticed. And you mentioned the US growth numbers coming in much weaker than expected. and it, But it's still the case that nobody thinks all these supply shortages stroke inflation pressures in the world economy are going to prompt a global recession. That's not present in anybody's forecast. Um, I probably wouldn't have it as my central case, but I'd be a lot more worried about growth next year than I think the average forecaster would be. What about you?
2: Yeah, I was looking today for other purposes at the IMF's uh, global economic outlook that they published there in early October to coincide with their annual meetings in Washington. And um they they remain pretty upbeat, but of course they they are caveated with all the usual, you know, risk factors, particularly the supply side shortages, but reflecting the point you made there that while people are focused on and talking about these supply-side shortages, uh, they're not really extending that into a significant impact on global economic activity. You know, it's it's almost as if uh, they're looking straight ahead at what they believe the future is going to look like and are ignoring the obstacles that are starting to appear. And I think, as we know, over a, a long number of years in this game, that that sort of perception is dangerous. That sort of ignoring uh, the obvious warning signs can be very, very dangerous. So I, I would say that the outlook for 2022 is certainly a lot more uncertain and clouded now than it was three or four months ago. I mean, when you get the sort of energy price shock that we're currently experiencing either, you know, oil prices, natural gas prices, indeed, all other commodity prices. Um, If you look at the uh, labour shortages, particularly in areas like construction, if you look at the shortage of materials, there's so much stuff building up there uh, that has the potential to cause a significant economic shock, unless um, it does turn out to be the case that these shortages are temporary and that as we move into 2022, as the weather starts to warm again, um, all of these prices and constraints will start to behave again. It's it's a little bit like um, a sort of a fairy tale ending, really, that people are talking about at the moment. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of stuff to watch. Um, yeah. One you
1: know, of those things to watch, Jim. Like the- I'm, I don't know if ever you watched um, Dad's Army. Indeed, indeed I did, yeah. And there was a a Scottish, I don't think he was Scottish actually, an English actor pretending to be a Scotsman that always used to wander around saying, we're all doomed. Fraser, I think, was his character's name, Private Fraser or Corporal Fraser, something like that. And uh, one of the things that doesn't seem to be impacting economic forecasters is the tone from Boris Johnson and from everybody else that I've seen make a speech Uh, to COP26, is that we're all doomed. Boris Johnson says it's one minute to midnight. Um, We have all sorts of projections for uh, climate disaster if we don't do what the experts say that we need to do. My take from a lot of the messages is that because we're not going to do what we're going to do, or in particular, what China, India... And Russia, three of the world's biggest carbon emitters, are clearly not going to do. We're, we're all going to die if you listen to organisations such as Extinction Rebellion. You may probably heard of those. The Extinction Rebellion is forecasting within a relatively short time frame famine in Western Europe. People are gluing themselves to the Britain's roads, forecasting disaster if we don't insulate British homes properly. Now, I know all of these people are very well meaning and all the rest of it, but the messaging is something that interests me, the extent to which it is accurate and the extent to which, if it is accurate or not, it's going to impact on economic forecasts. One of the things that I try to do with all of this is to, is to suspend my judgment and listen to experts, because I am not a climatologist, I am not a weather person, so I listen to what people are saying. One of the things that the no, no expert that I've been able to uh, find, for example, thinks that on any kind of reasonable timescale, by, and that by that I mean multi-decade, Extinction Rebellion's forecasts of famine in Western Europe are non-existent. They no, no no expert. And I could go through a list of things like this that don't seem to accord with expert opinion, but expert opinion that is very worried about the, the outlook for uh, the global climate. Um, it, it seems that it, we've reached the stage now where the message is we're all doomed, where the whatever the climate, whatever the weather is, whenever we get heavy rain, whether it's very cold, very hot, very windy, no wind, whatever it is, it's all down to climate change. It's all hopeless. And so it's, it's, if that were true, one would not be an economic optimist, one would assume. And more generally, I think that is, I certainly would take the messages of the experts on climate change very seriously. It strikes me that the messaging is all wrong, because all that they're doing is, is 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 if they're telling people we're all doomed, um it's it's it reminds me a little bit about the Remain campaign for Brexit, which was another we're all doomed messaging, which just turned people off and they didn't listen to it. The fact is that an awful lot of what that we're all doomed remain campaign said was actually true. But the way in which they said it, no matter how true it was, just turned people off. And I I think a lot of the climate stuff that I'm seeing coming out of um, Glastonbury. Sorry, COP26. <laughs> um, Freudian slip there. Sorry, Freudian slip there, yeah. Is, is uh, gl- Glastonbury for conspicuous environmentalism, indeed. Um, so I worry about the messaging, that the, the true nature of the message is being lost. But the, that, that that's my concern, and that we should be listening to the experts, not the people that have these more lurid, um, fanciful forecasts for the economy. But the it's the interaction of all this climate stuff with economic forecasts. There doesn't seem to be any interaction to my mind. What do you think, Jim?
2: Uh, there's no interaction whatsoever. I, I was amused, Chris, you were using Dad's army. We're all doomed. Uh, I think you need to get with the times. Uh, Jon Snow in Game of Thrones, winter is coming. Uh, that's a much more contemporary uh, messaging. So.
1: I stand corrected, Jim. I'm showing I'm showing my age yet again. <laughs> you,
2: you are indeed, but worryingly, I remember that in Dad's Army very well. Uh, there is a total disconnect between economic forecasters and the climate experts. There is no doubt whatsoever about that, because um, if you look at long-term projections for the global economy, and when I say long-term, you know, those that attempt to forecast out five or ten years, and some do. Uh, There is nothing that I have come across built in there that reflects the sort of cataclysmic climate outcome and impact that the climate experts are predicting. So there is very definitely disconnect. And I totally agree with you. If you listen to the climate experts and if you believe what they're saying is true, well, then your whole perspective on global economic outlook, on equity markets, on everything really should change dramatically but it's 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 not happening uh, is this naivety on the part of markets and economic forecasters um or is it basically sort of whistling past the graveyard to use that terminology uh it's 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 hard to know but you, you observe around the world at the moment uh what's happening in terms of weather events um in terms of the dislocation to food production in certain parts of the world because of droughts and flooding. When you look at the likely forced migration of people out of areas that are likely to either become barren or flooded and and the political implications of that, you could really, really become very depressed about the future. Certainly, you would be believing that we're all doomed or winter is coming. But as I say, that's not been reflected in uh, the Economists or the financial markets view of the world—only one side is going to be right in this. So it does remain to be seen. What do you think about what you observe happening in Glasgow at the moment with COP twenty-six? I
1: I don't know. I I do think that, and again, I would—I'm not an expert, and I don't pretend to be. I am one of those people that are turned off by we're all doomed messages, but I am also one of these people that take climate change very seriously and think that you know there are personal actions that we all need to take. And I hope that I am doing some of them at least. But I'm also acutely conscious that no matter what I do, no matter what the UK does, or Ireland does, if the Chinese don't play ball, there's no point. There really is no point whatsoever. And we could we could eliminate all of our carbon emissions here in the UK and eliminate all of Ireland's emissions. And if China doesn't play ball, it, there really is no point at all. So that there's... There's all sorts of paradoxes and complications to do with this. I I get annoyed by the extent to which the debate is not framed by experts. And I prefer to listen to experts rather than people tell me things like there is going to be a famine in Europe very soon as a a result of climate change. I'm puzzled by so many aspects of it. You know, the fact that there is always in in the popular media, at least a very heavy focus on aviation and aviation is 2% of global carbon emissions. All that kind of thing worries me. I think that politicians still aren't telling people what they've got to do with any degree of precision in order to be able to make a difference. And... And it's got an awful lot to do with the vehicles that we drive, how we transport ourselves, the food that we eat. I'm learning stuff all the time, Jim. I, I, you're going to shoot me for saying this, but I only just realized the other day that this obsession or this thing that we, we all know about, that the the carbon emissions of, of cows or, and other emissions, not just carbon they're methane, that there's a there's a distinction between the beef herd and the dairy herd. I didn't realize that we had two different types of cow. But anyway, perhaps you can explain it to me one day. Um, Chris,
2: Frisians and Holsteins are typically used for dairy production. Other breeds like Cemental, Hereford, Shorthorn are used for beef production. Very different animals, very different production processes and very different um, environmental impacts.
1: Yes. The moment, the, the political difficulty, and I'm not unsympathetic to the politicians, is, is that wherever you are in the world and that each country has its own particular axe to grind and issue to deal with politically. Um, some countries, if they, if you don't have coal-fired power stations, are not going to have any power at all. And But anytime anybody actually says this is what we've got to do, uh, what we have to do is going to offend some important constituency or another, be it a coal miner. Be it a dairy farmer, and each time somebody is offended, the politician concerned invariably says, "Oh no, no, no! I didn't mean it. We're going to, you know, we're not going to impact on you at all." And I think people just need experts to tell us with precision, or at least as much precision can be brought to bear on this, what we're going to have to do, how much is it going to cost, and what the messaging is, uh, rather than being told you're all doomed. Because I think in that difficult message about trade-offs and costs and what we've actually got to do there is a positive message to be told there is a way of doing this that gives us hope over and above the we're all doomed message or in opposition to that because if we were to invest heavily much more heavily in the green transition than we are i think the positive economic consequences of that the jobs that would flow for that the technological benefits that would go from that could be fantastic I think it needs a, a Kennedy-type moonshot speech. When Kennedy stood up at the beginning of the 60s and said, we're going to be landing on the moon by the end of the 1960s, all of the experts said, you, can't be, you, you must be crazy. It can't be done. And of course, they did it. We, we know that we're going to need technology to solve part of this problem, at least technology that doesn't exist today in terms of significantly better batteries, significantly cheaper and scalable carbon capture, and we, in, the only way we're ever going to be able to do this is if we throw huge amounts of money at it. These are the sorts of things I would like to see, but I don't think I am seeing.
2: Yeah, I've I've just been reading uh, the book on climate change that Bill Gates published during the summer. It's It, it fascinates me about Bill Gates, how he has suddenly become um, a hate figure for a certain segment of society and the conspiracy theorists and so on. I just don't get it, but I'm obviously missing something.
1: That's because you've been vaccinated with the Bill Gates chip. (laughs) That's
2: probably it, Chris. That's probably it. But no, um, Gates starts off um, sort of anticipating the reaction he would get from those people when he talks about climate change. You know, the fact that he used his private jet to fly around the world, um, and so on. His counter argument would be that he's doing all this stuff, he's investing in environmentally friendly businesses, and that the, the I, I guess, the, that the environmental cost of what he is doing is far out by his own personal behavior, is far outweighed by the potential benefits that will accrue from what he's trying to achieve. But one of the key messages that Gates certainly makes is the use of technology as a climate change mitigator, it's a very sort of upbeat assessment really of what is possible um, if we address the problems. But of course, as you say, uh, the messaging is all wrong. And um, unfortunately, as in most issues nowadays, uh, there is no centre here. You have an extreme view on either side and you you, you believe one or the other, but there's never a sort of a nuanced um, interpretation of what's happening.
1: And I totally accept that everything is either extreme right or extreme left, or you know, you're know you either for it or against it, and the, the centre has crumbled. But my point about the, the messaging was more an old-fashioned marketing sales-type messaging that still tell the truth, but you can tell it in a way that people are more likely to listen, is perhaps what I'm getting at.
2: Chris, that takes political charisma. We do I not know. have charismatic That's political... That's why I
1: referenced Kennedy making yeah. moonshot speeches. The, yeah. I don't know if... I, you're a very stable, well-adjusted individual, Jim, so you probably <laughs> never would have been um, psychoanalyzed, um, unlike those of us who are slightly... <laughs> Slight less stable, shall we say bet on it, Chris. But there's in in psychotherapy there's something called cbt cognitive behavioral therapy I don't know whether you've ever heard of it
2: yeah the guy the guy died yesterday
1: yes the yeah. guy he was a hundred died, yeah. and I listened on the radio this morning uh they were reporting his death and they had a little recording of a little talk he gave some some while ago about the essence of cbt it's a bit you know cliched i supposed or simplified i suspect he was just simplifying it for his audience but what he talked about is that the cbt was trying to turn around people's perceptions of whatever problem it was that they were looking at it and trying to extract the hope trying to see where there might be something positive from this very difficult, desperate situation they found themselves in. And I guess, in a way, that's what I'm saying about this messaging for for climate change, is that it's a desperately depressing situation that we find ourselves in, and that if we are going to change, then we've all got to do it. That message has got to be gotten across in, in a way that is perhaps a wee bit more hopeful, a wee bit less depressing if we are to stand any chance of of people saying, yeah, I am going to change.
2: This Thursday, Chris, the Irish government is publishing, apparently, uh, the latest climate action plan where it's laying out its targets out to 2030, I think, um, 51% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030. And um, it is going to elicit an incredibly negative reaction because... Uh, last week, we had KPMG conducting a report research for the Irish Farmers Journal, uh, looking at the impact of a 30% reduction in emissions in agriculture. Uh, they're saying it'll cost over 56,000 jobs, take four billion out of the agricultural economy, um, and, and so on. Micheál Martin was out today from COP26, you know, arguing that this was a total exaggeration, um, that it was scaremongering. But it, it does show just how difficult politically it is going to be to actually yeah. put the
1: measures That's your point about leadership, is yeah. that if it is, if it is scaremongering, who am I to say that it is or it isn't? us um, isn't? Let's hear it. If we can be dairy farmers and reduce emissions, let's hear how we're going to do it. If we can't be dairy farmers and reduce emissions, let's hear what, we're going to do to help the dairy farmers make the transition to whatever it is they're going to be doing in the future let's just have an honest debate and let's have as positive a debate as we can about how we're going to help people make the transition how many jobs are actually going to be created not just destroyed from the green agenda and just just different kind of messaging that's it All yeah, right jim absolutely. i think we should probably call it there yeah that's that's been a long one um so welcome back again and speak to you again soon Thank you, Chris.
2: You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.